I started off thinking that I had to be right. And if I was just right, if I just explained why the, this was the right thing to do, the world would just align. And it doesn't really matter if you're right, if you're not solving the concerns of the people who are opposed. Hi, my name is Jean-Pierre Huayri, and you're listening to Clean, the first and only podcast here to help you change the world. My guests are social innovators that are changing the performance capacity of society. We'll take you inside the transformative forces, technologies, and ideas that are shifting behavior patterns around global sustainability and perceptions about how we, as humans, live, consume, and behave. You'll see that you too can make a difference. The name of this podcast got changed along the way. In case you hear the word fresco, we're talking about this very same clean.org podcast. Let's dive in. So Nick, first of all, thanks for joining us here at Fresco, uh, the first and only podcast dedicated to helping people learn from others who are changing the world. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got started. Sure. Thank you for having me on. I'm not sure I'm changing the world, but I... I appreciate the compliment. So my name is Nick. I work for an organization called Californians Against Waste. We are an environmental organization in Sacramento, California. Been around for 45 years working on state policy around recycling, waste reduction. And in recent years, we've been heavily involved in composting and organics policy and also plastics and you know plastic pollution. So that's some of the stuff that we work on. For me personally, I've been with the organization since 2007. I started right after college, went to Davis for environmental policy, and then immediately after college started at CAW. Okay. You know, since you touched on college, do you feel that the program you took prepared you for what you were going to face? That's a really good question. I would say largely no. Just because I think what I do is such a narrow niche area that it's kind of hard to, to go to school for this specifically. I mean, we, we do lobbying, we do coalition building, policy development, stuff like that. You know, I went to school for my, my major was actually environmental biology, but I minored in environmental policy and political science. So all that taken together is basically what I do. But most of my job is just learning on the job. I don't think I necessarily learned how to do it ahead of time. So let's dive into the deep end and, and keep swimming. If someone wanted to create change in government policy and going to college wasn't what prepared you, what could they do or what would you do differently knowing what you know now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you should do is find an organization that you feel like is effective at causing change and reach out to them, email them, cold call them, say, hey, could I meet you for a cup of coffee and sit down with the, the person who has the job that you want to be doing and ask them how they got there, if they have any internships, if they have any openings. Really, I think that's the best approach. What, what I've learned over my time at CAW is that it's not always obvious that this is a career that people want to do. People want to affect change, but there's so many different ways to affect change. And the political space is one way to do it, but it's also uh, it also takes a very specific mindset. And I don't think most people realize whether or not they're cut out for it or something they want to do until they try it. So I would say an internship. What are some of the 
hallmarks of an organization that is in fact enacting change and not just paying lip service to it? You know, that's a really good question. And I'm not sure there is a very tangible way to measure that. I mean, you could say, look at the, you know, bills they have passed, look at the land they have conserved, look at, you know, the the actual metrics. Um, But that's not always the best indicator. You can pass a lot of bad bills that don't actually help at all and actually maybe hurt an issue. Or you can spend years on a campaign for one bill that has a really big impact. So it's kind of hard to, to measure in that sense. You know, I, I don't know if there is a metric. I, I It's a gut level thing for me um, more than anything. What are you most proud of accomplishing there or, or that your organization has accomplished? Well, our organization has accomplished a lot and a lot of it predates me. And, you know, as an organization, I think we're probably most proud of creating the bottle bill, the beverage container deposit. You know, you pay a nickel and then you get it back. And that's become a model for other states and for other countries. And it's a very effective recycling program. But that most of that predated me. I personally am probably most proud of the work we've done around composting and organic waste. It's something that wasn't really very much on the radar at the state level when I started, but we've been pretty successful in getting it prioritized in legislation and regulations. And we're about to start seeing composting rolled out statewide actually at the end of next year. So there are new regulations. There are new regulations that we worked on that just got adopted and they go into effect January 1st, 2022. And basically everybody in California is going to have a composting service for, for their food waste, their green waste, um, there are other organics. Okay. We, we got a lot of tangents we can go on uh, from that. And so I'm going to start unpacking that. Uh, let's rewind a second. Imagine I am a teenager sitting in a, in a city and I want to bring composting to my state. Run me through the mechanics that your organization had to go through in as much detail as possible to educate someone who actually wants wants to enact legislation. What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about identifying opportunities and being prepared to act on them. So, you know, we, let me start with where we were 14 years ago. There were some composting programs in the Bay Area. San Francisco had a good one, um, but it wasn't super widespread. And as a state and as a country, we weren't doing a good job with our organic waste. We were good at recycling bottles and cans and paper, but organic waste wasn't being considered at all. And there are a lot of reasons why you want to recycle it. First of all, it just makes up like two thirds of the, of the garbage in the landfill. But there's also you know, climate change benefits of getting it out of landfills because in landfills it rots and releases methane and methane is a really strong greenhouse gas. So if it, just for the listeners, uh, methane, if I'm not mistaken, is about 18 times more toxic than carbon monoxide, which is what comes out of cars, right? It, that's actually pretty outdated. It, it's uh, 33 times, I believe, is the most recent. And even that's working at 100, that's looking at a 100-year time frame. But actually, methane has its entire impact in its first 12 years. So if you adjust it for a 20-year time frame, which is another way that they measure, it's 80 some odd 
times more powerful. So, you know, the methane from the landfills is one angle. The other angle is we're taking the stuff that has a lot of value and we're destroying it. And the, the same stuff that we're putting in a landfill can be made into a product that helps agriculture, that makes soils uh, be more resilient to droughts and to fires and you know, a lot of the impacts of climate change that we're seeing. It also allows more regenerative agricultural systems to sequester carbon. So there are a ton of benefits and I could geek out about compost for hours, but I won't do that. But as an organization, we prioritized, this is really where we need to focus. This is a, a high priority. And the, the vision that my boss at the time had was that climate change seemed like the opportunity to, to engage on that issue because of all the climate connections there. And I know he uh, sought out grant funding to hire me to work specifically on climate change. It was I was basically hired immediately after California passed its landmark greenhouse gas law, which was AB 32. And under this law, the legislature told our state air board to regulate greenhouse gases and to reduce climate change. And my job was to make sure that that conversation included recycling, included composting. Uh, at, at first blush, it's not something that people think about when they think about climate change. People tend to think of tailpipes and smokestacks, but they don't think about landfills. They don't think about the potential to reverse climate change through use of compost. And it, it actually took a while to break through and to get that to be part of the conversation. Because when the Air Board did their first models, they basically said, well, landfills are 2% of the emissions. And if we put in better gas systems, we can get that down. And that's, our, that's what we're going to do on waste. And it took a while of, of organizing, getting other advocates to show up at meetings, meeting with staff over and over and over and explaining the huge opportunity with diverting the organic waste to begin with, as opposed to trying to capture gas from a 500 acre hole in the ground. And that was really, uh, I think, one of the big turning points is when the Air Resources Board started including organics diversion and composting into their climate plans. And they actually proposed requiring all businesses to have composting service as part of their regulations. That led a lot of folks who had previously sort of opposed or not really wanted to be involved in, in organics recycling. It really led them to engage and try to find a way to make it work. Because if you're a garbage company, what it comes down to is you want to make sure you're being paid to provide a service. And, you know, you might be in the business of running a landfill, but ultimately, if the state is going to stop landfilling, then you want to be in the business of collecting and processing the material, whichever way the state wants you to. And that's where I think most of our successes have been, have been really talking to the local governments, talking to the waste haulers, trying to figure out what they need in order to be successful. You know, we've partnered with companies like Waste Management Republic on legislation, uh, Recology, um, some of the other big garbage companies. And so we've partnered with them on legislation uh, requiring businesses to have composting, ending a practice that had been in place for a long time where green waste was used as landfill cover every day. And eventually this 
regulation I mentioned earlier, SB 1383, which is a comprehensive policy on organics. And it took a lot of work and it, it was passed in 2016. I think it took I mean, arguably 10 years of work to get to that point. And then after the, the legislation was passed, the implementation period started and the regulations were just finished now. So that's 2020. So really my whole time at CAW, the 13 years or however long it's been, have really been about building up towards this one comprehensive policy. And I'm really excited to see it actually go into effect in 2022. Congratulations. And again, you've given me something that we can really unravel and un- unpack uh, pretty deeply. Um, and so uh, one of the things is, first, I'd love to have you back on the show to try and uh, create a blueprint for anyone that wants to try and start that 14-year journey that you have behind you now and that allowed you to start creating change on the ground through composting, right? Yeah, well, there are huge logistical challenges, but maybe the the political will is really the bigger challenge. Once you decide you want to do it, once a local government decides they want to do it, their waste hauler, their service provider can take care of the logistics. But having the political will to raise rates, for example, is much harder. I didn't really answer your question, but if if I were to, to say, you know, what I've learned the most about actually affecting change it would be that I started off thinking that I had to be right. And if I was just right, if I just explained why the, this was the right thing to do, the world would just align. And it doesn't really matter if you're right, if you're not solving the concerns of the people who are opposed. You know, the, the way the California legislature works, and I think most legislatures, is that one interest group can't really just override everybody else. And so whether you're working on you know, any kind of public interest policy, you've got to find a way to partner with unusual folks, businesses, local governments, et cetera, because it's very easy to be an environmentalist making an environmental argument, and that won't necessarily go very far. But what lawmakers like to see is, okay, the environmentalists have found a solution and a timeframe and an implementation schedule that works for the industry that has to deal with it. Um, And really listening to the industry and trying to hear what their real concerns are is a lot more important than trying to convince somebody that you're right. You know, you're, um, you're one of the more, I don't want to say even keeled, but you, you have very good clarity on what it takes to enact change. And I think that only comes from, some painful experiences. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, we really should have a longer conversation at some point, but you know, one of my first bills, I remember one of my first bills that I worked on was a bill to get rid of, of diversion credit, is what it's called, for green waste that's used as landfill cover. Basically, what happens is, so what happens to most of the yard waste that you generate is that you collect it, you put it in your green bin on the curb, the garbage company picks it up and takes it, believe it or not, to the landfill and puts it on top of the garbage. And the reason for that is uh, they are supposed to cover garbage at the end of each day to make sure that you know rodents and seagulls and other things don't get to it. But we actually ended up incentivizing that by calling that recycling. 
So it turned out to be one of the cheapest ways for cities to meet their recycling goals was by taking all your green waste and just putting it in the landfill and calling that recycling. And they were, they were checking a box on weight, basically, when they passed away. Exactly. It was used uh, way more than it needed to be um, because there's just such a cheap way to get recycling. And so one of my first bills was to, to clarify that that is disposal, not recycling. And I think I approached it from such a self-righteous perspective of being right. And really, like, if people just knew what was happening to their greenways, they'd be rioting in the streets. And uh, I remember the, the lobbyists who I won't name because this, you know, everything lives on the internet forever. But I remember the lobbyists for one of the garbage companies basically kicked my butt. And I thought he was the most evil person in the world because he was fighting to continue this practice that I thought was so evil. But, you know, then I realized in talking to them, there are specific issues why it was hard for them to sign on to this. They had contracts that basically would have left them on the hook with some of these costs and they wouldn't have had a way to recover the costs. Um, there were implementation timeline issues or infrastructure issues, et cetera. And the more I talked to them, the more I realized we can actually work together to achieve both the environmental goal, but in a way that actually makes sense for them. And since then, I've worked with that lobbyist a lot, especially in recent years. I think he's an amazing lobbyist and he advocates for his client effectively. And he's not the evil villain that I felt he was when I first met him. Um, because he's advocating for his client's position. His client's position is rational and reasonable. And, you know, if I want to overcome the status quo, I can either build such a big coalition that his client's position doesn't matter, or I can work to address their concerns. And every group, every environmental organization, every public interest advocate is going to have a different balance there of how much you compromise, how much you fight, where the line is, where you've compromised too much. But really finding that line and finding the way to actually accomplish change is the most interesting part of my job. It's people, people hear that I'm a lobbyist and they think I am you know, talking to legislators nonstop, trying to convince them of things, or they imagine that I'm at swanky parties. So it's kind of one of those two things, but neither of them is true. Like, yes, we meet with legislators and we make our case. Yes, we meet with staff and make our case. But for the most part, it's about trying to solve the problem and looking at how do you solve the problem? Like if the company says, well, we can't do it because we don't have composting facilities, then let's unpack that. How do you, how do we make it so that composting is economical for you? Well, we don't have markets to sell the compost. Okay, let's unpack that. How do we build markets? How do we increase agricultural use of compost? Permitting is an issue. Okay, what's what are the barriers to permitting? And it's kind of putting all those pieces of the puzzle together. And you know, I'm sure there are plenty of folks who felt that we missed the mark, we went too far in, in the environmental direction. But finding that balance is really the most interesting part of my job. And it's it's not about being more right than the opposition. Okay. That was so good. Uh, thank you. Let's get into the business side of things. Uh, perhaps we have a listener who says, you know what, how can I make money while helping the environment? What, what would you say to an entrepreneur 
uh, that they could potentially do. I'm sure you have so many ideas that since you're the one creating these opportunities, what might you point people in the direction of? And perhaps it doesn't have to be a, a huge business today, but maybe it's going to be a really important business five or 10 years from now, or maybe even 20 for people with longer horizons. Yeah, I hear uh, buying Tesla stock is a good way to get rich. <laughs> um, you know, th- there's a joke that there's a self-deprecating joke that the composters sometimes make of, you know, do you know the best way to make a, a small fortune in the compost business is to start with a large fortune? Um, <laughs> yes. And I, I think that there's some truth to that, that this isn't necessarily a good way to get rich. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of folks who have great ideas for, for technologies, for, for processing organic waste and making products out of it. The most economical way to compost is almost always the most low-tech way, which is a large facility with, with rows of material that get turned and nature does all the work. And that's how we're going to end up handling the majority of the material. But there's no patent on that. There's no way to sell a fancy product. And so, and so there are a lot of people who see what they think is an environmental business opportunity of I'm going to take this product and I'm going to, I'm going to pyrolyze it and I'm going to make biochar. And then this biochar is going to be worth a bazillion dollars a pound. And, you know, I, I've come up with the next iPhone. But realistically, there's a reason why other people haven't done that. It's because the cost involved, the energy involved, et cetera, doesn't really merit the margins that we're talking about here. So to some extent, I tend to discourage a lot of entrepreneurs who come to talk to me. I tend to be a cold blanket or a wet blanket, I guess, because almost every idea they have is something that's been tried and didn't work for some reason. And you can't get rich quick composting. That said, we will need a bunch of different technologies, a bunch of different approaches. You know, there's some folks who want to take food waste, for example, and grow black soldier fly larvae, and then use that larva to feed fish that they grow, and, and then they can sell the feed or the fish. I'm sorry. And you know, there's ideas like that. There, there's uh, worm composting. There's anaerobic digestion. There's aerobic digestion, there's enzymes, there's fuel production, et cetera. There are a million different ways to process the stuff. And there are entrepreneurial opportunities there, but I think you have to be realistic about the margins involved, the economics involved in handling large, large quantities of organic waste. And uh, on that topic, what about, for example, taking uh, organic waste and using it to supply your pig farm and so you lower the cost of feed at, at your at your hog farm is that something you've seen done yeah definitely it's actually very commonly done from what i understand it's it's one of the most closely guarded secrets of a lot of folks in the grocery industry or you know like food banks and other folks is that they never want to tell anybody who their hog farm is because they're afraid somebody else is going to go and undercut them um, it's one of the only places where you can take your food scraps and actually get paid for them as opposed to having to pay to make them into new product. And it's a great thing. We love it. You know, to extent that we can avoid growing crops to feed to animals, that's going to be more sustainable 
than anything else we can do. So we talk about a food waste hierarchy. It's kind of the reduced reuse recycle, except for food waste, where you know the top priority is feeding people. If you have a bunch of produce at a supermarket, the top priority is to get that to either sell it or get that to a food bank to feed hungry people. If you can't do that, if it's spoiled, if you know it's contaminated, whatever, then the next highest priority is feeding animals. And again, because otherwise there could be material that, or there could be crops that are grown for that purpose, which has a lot of impacts. But if you can't feed animals, there's only so many animals out there and there's only so much capacity, then the next step is what I call feeding the soil. So making a soil amendment, compost being the biggest, but you know, it could be liquid fertilizers and other, other things you could make. And that's sort of the, the, the loading order, so to speak, for, for handling food waste environmentally and logistically. And it's not a new concept. You know, we've been feeding scraps to animals for as long as we've had animals, right? Right. That's a, that's a very uh, good point. You know, I've uh, done a lot of uh, food recovery and taken it to food banks myself. And I, I had a lot of trouble finding a source of food when I went down the, what would I say, quote unquote, obvious places, supermarkets and whatnot, because they'd all say, oh, we already compost this. And, I, and I'd say, why are you composting a slice of pizza? Somebody could eat it, right? But then I discovered an untapped source, and that was catering companies. I had a buddy with a catering company, and after every event, I'd pick up 800, 900 pounds of food and drop it off at the food shelter, and sorry, the homeless shelter, and the people, the staff there would be so appreciative because now they didn't have to cook as much because they could just warm this food up. So that was a little, like, uh, you know, unexpected upside on, on recovering food from catering companies and going to, uh, to the homeless shelter. And by the way, there's over 900,000 catering companies. In America, I, I don't know what that number is going to be now with COVID, uh, but I imagine that they'll come back at some point. And, and I urge uh, our listeners who want to have an impact to just contact these catering companies because they actually are very happy to have someone pick up the food. It helps their staff be happier because when their staff sees all this food going to waste, they actually feel bad. And at the same time, it, it makes the owner feel good about what he does for a living. So they're very happy to have you pick up the food, but you will have to cover the bill on, on your gas uh, on any containers you're going to use because they're not going to give you their own supplies to pick up the food. Uh, and then you got to, you know, get it to the homeless shelter fast enough so that it doesn't spoil uh, because uh, there are a few rules around that. Uh, but I don't think most people should worry about, for example, being sued because, uh, and I'll let you fill in the blank here, Nick, for, for, for our listeners. Not enough people realize that there's actually laws that protect people who donate food. Can, can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, thank you. That's a great, uh, I didn't feed you the question, but that is an issue we've worked on quite a bit. California was actually the first state in the country to pass what's known as a Good Samaritan law, meaning you can't get in trouble for doing something as a Good Samaritan. You can't get in trouble for donating food. And that was, uh, I believe, in the late 70s, early 80s that we passed that. And then it was copied by a lot of other states across the country. And then there was a federal bill in the 90s called the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Act, which is uh, about basically saying you will not get in trouble if you give something to a food bank and then somebody gets sick. Mm -hmm. There's one caveat. 
the, the only caveat is, as far as I remember, is as long as there's not willful negligence. You didn't leave fish out in the sun for three days and then try and feed people. It, it, exactly. And th- th- there are some researchers out of Harvard and at the Natural Resources Defense Council that came up with a list of recommendations for ways to strengthen the protections. And we introduced a bill that we actually worked on with the food banks to expand California's Good Samaritan law to cover all of those other areas. So making it clear that you know our, our law was, uh, I believe it said negligence, and we changed that to, to gross negligence, but also expanding it to say that if you're donating directly to individuals, if you're not donating to a food bank, you're still protected. So really in California, unless you're intentionally trying to make somebody sick, there's no way you will face any liability from donating food. And this updated California Good Samaritan Act is the strongest in the country. And really, for the most part, those changes weren't necessary. There are no cases out there that I know of, of people actually getting sued. But, you know, the the managers of restaurants and grocery stores, et cetera, are always worried about liability. And so it's more about putting them at ease than actually stopping any real liability threat. Yes. And if we have any listeners that are, you know, connected to anyone at the restaurant association or even open table who can get a message out to every restaurant owner, uh, let them know they can do this and they are legally protected to donate food and, and they won't get in trouble because I've come across very intelligent people at the Four Seasons, the general managers who are afraid to donate the leftovers of their buffet every Sunday because they think they're going to get sued. And so they just throw it away. Uh, we, Someone, and maybe it's you and I, uh, create a little system and, and start putting the word out to, to, to people because there's a lot of restaurants and a lot of hotels throwing away a lot of food. And if you want some resources to give to a hotel manager or a restaurant manager, the California Association of Food Banks has a, a one-pager that summarizes this new law. And then the California Directors of Environmental Health, basically the, the restaurant health inspectors, also have materials that they put together that talk about the protections. They both have them on their websites. I'm sure you could just Google uh, California Good Samaritan Food Donation Law and either food banks or environmental health, and you'll get their, their fact sheets that are really detailed. And the nice thing about the environmental health folks is that it's coming from the restaurant inspectors. It's coming from a trusted voice. I see. You know, Nick, um, I'm enjoying this so much. I, I want to travel to you and buy you a drink for all the good you're doing and, and just really pick your brain so much because you have got so much knowledge in there that people need to hear. And so what I'm going to do is end this now because we've gone over our allotted time by a little bit uh, and I don't want to end it. So I'm doing it with my teeth grit, but why don't we try and and get back together when it's good for you and and dive deeper into some of these topics, especially the mechanics of the day to day. And we don't have to cover everything. We could find one or two topics and, and start peeling back some of the layers to help other people who are just starting to try and do what you do. Uh, but don't have your 14, 15 years of painful lessons. And, and let's let's help them turbocharge uh, their lobbying. What do you say? That sounds great. Looking forward to it. 
Me too, Nick. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. I, I got to tell you, I am so excited that I met you. You're awesome. And going back to the beginning of the podcast, I stand by what I said. You very much are changing the world. And I thank you for that. All right. I look forward to our next conversation. All right. Thank you, Nick. Hello, this is Jean-Pierre. Thank you for listening. I hope this episode gave you some ideas and helped you consider ways to make a positive difference in our world. You can reach me to jp at clean.org.